you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, the last chapter, Acts 28. This is our second to last sermon, Lord willing, in the book of Acts, um, the last of which will be in three weeks since we have some joint services coming up. And that last one will just be hopefully a summary of the whole book and trying to think on what the Lord's taught us in the many weeks that we've been in this book. Uh, but today our text is Acts 28, verses 15 through the end of that chapter and the end of the book, uh, verse 31. And I want us to just begin by reading that text, but actually we'll begin in verse 11. Um, and as we look at these verses, we're going to form our, our idea, our, our mind around this big idea to hear, see, and believe the gospel is a miracle. To hear, see, and believe the gospel is a miracle. Hopefully you know I mean it's a, a miracle that God is doing. Uh, it's not a miracle that someone else is doing, but you could say a miracle of God, if you like, if that's helpful. But to hear, see, and believe the gospel is a miracle. Let's read Acts 28, beginning in verse 11, some verses that we looked at last week. Luke writes for us, After three months, we set sail in a ship. This is from the island of Malta. We set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, Regium, and after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. I'm not sure if that's how you say it. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because... There was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. 
The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray once more. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would understand what your word says to us. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've sent, that you have promised will lead us into all truth. So we ask God that you would lead us into the truth this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. So those last two verses, they're going to help us in a couple, in a few weeks to sort of summarize the book. And so if I don't touch on those, know that we will eventually. But for now, I want us to focus on this scene that we have of, of Paul in Rome and to think on that truth again, to, to hear, see, and believe the gospel is a miracle. Uh, last week we left off in, in verse 14 where we read those words, and so we came to Rome. So this culmination of God's providence and God's promise that they made it to Rome. Except when we stopped in verse 14, we actually left Paul uh, in this town of Puteoli, or it's actually right near Naples. So let's just say Naples because that's a lot easier for me to say. So he's in Naples, which is actually a good bit away from Rome, probably about 150 miles or so uh, southeast of Rome. And they're going to travel that distance, but they're going to travel by land uh, this time, not by boat. And as they make their journey, they, they, are, they seem to be picking up travelers along the way. When Paul arrives there in Naples on the coast, uh, many people went out to meet him. And for seven days, they, they greeted him and got to know what was going on with him. And possibly some traveled with him all the way up to Rome. And then as Paul is traveling along this road, and you can still see this road. I was looking at it on Google Maps. It's probably one of the oldest roads in, in the world still. It's this straight road called the Appian Way, A-P-P-I-A-N. I think that may be how you pronounce it. Uh, and it leads straight into Rome. And as he's traveling up this road, it had this canal down the middle, and you can still see that is there. Um, as he's heading to Rome, he comes to the to the Forum of Apius, which is about 40 miles from Rome. And there's people there that had come from Rome to meet Paul on the way. Uh, then he gets to this town called Three Taverns. What a great name for a town. Three Taverns is just, you know, that's what it was known for. It had these three taverns or three shops of some kind. Um, that's about 30 miles outside of Rome. And there's more brothers and sisters from Rome that had come south to meet Paul. They couldn't wait for him to get to Rome. They wanted to be there and, and greet him. And so here's this guy in chains. He's a, he's a prisoner of the Roman government. And all along the route, it's like a a parade. He's like a celebrity. People are there and meeting him and, and wanting to walk with him. We're told that when Paul saw them, um, that he was he he thanked God and he took courage. That's in verse um, 16 there. 
or verse 15, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and he took courage. He, he recognized these brothers and sisters as an evidence of God's grace to him. And after this long journey, he is filled with courage for what lay in front of him, which is Rome and this, this trial that he's going to face. You just wonder if, if all that he had gone through, the, the travel and, and the shipwreck and everything, and maybe it had started to take a, a toll on Paul and he'd lost a little bit of his vision for what God, God was going to do in and through him. And, and now this, uh, seeing these folks, lift, it lifts his spirit. It reminds him of the mission that God has sent him on. Reminds him that as these brothers and sisters are with him, so too God has not left him or forsaken him. Uh, this all serves to remind us of, of what we said last week, that, that Paul had friends everywhere. Everywhere Paul went, he, he knew someone, and, and Rome was no exception. If you, this, this evening, if you read the first 16 verses of Romans 16, all it is is Paul greeting people, over 25 people by name that he greets, people that he knew that were in Rome, um, that, that he was friends with, that he administered alongside. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were there at the time that he wrote the, the book of the, the letter to the Romans. I wonder if they were there maybe at three taverns to, to greet Paul, hadn't seen him in a while and just couldn't wait to. But that all these people were there and, and surely some of them came and, and met Paul and then walked with him as they entered into Rome. You know where Jesus famously teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that if our, if our enemies force us to go a mile with them, that we should go two miles with them. And how much more so should, should we find our, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, should we be willing to walk with them uh, as, as these friends walked with Paul? Um, and with true friends, we, we don't have to wait for them to come find us. They, 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 we don't have to, to call on them. They, they come find us. They find us on the road where we're at. Uh, they meet us on the way. We don't have to, they, they don't say call if you need anything. We just sort of show up and, and help. And that's kind of what's happening with Paul here. It reminds me that it's no small thing to be present with people, especially in this age of disconnected connectedness. Um, Jesus in his incarnation shows us the value of, of physical presence amongst and with one another. And we find that God's kindness and his encouragement often come in the form of people who are willing to walk with us. Uh, maybe literally, but, but just walk with us down the difficult road of life, especially down the difficult roads. We, we, can, we, we receive um, God's grace and we are extensions of God's grace when we are welcomed by others and when we welcome others into our lives, when we walk with one another. That's part of God's grace in us. And it's, it's an encouragement. And we can, as Paul did, we should thank God for the friends that we have. And we should be encouraged by the people that walk with us. And so again, let me encourage you to find ways to walk with one another. Um, I'll give you a real practical one. The next two Sundays are a great opportunity. We have uh, 10 o'clock service and everyone's probably going to eat lunch for the most part, I think. Um, find some friends to invite to your house for lunch or a restaurant that you want to go to and spend time with one another, journeying in life together and getting to know one another and encouraging and strengthening those friendships because we need one another on the difficult road of life. Well, 
despite all of the support and all of the people around him, it was still true that when Paul got to Rome, he was a, a prisoner. He was, everything is, is beautiful in this scene, but he's still a prisoner of the Roman government. But we do find that he has his own place to stay. There's a soldier that, that guards him, but there's a residence that he has, probably provided by members of the church uh, that maybe provided this for him and paid for it. Um, and it would seem, it, it, we can also remember too, as we think about what's Paul going to do in Rome, uh, this is where Paul, in this residence that he goes into, this is probably where he writes the letters to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon. That's where he's writing these letters from. Uh, but of course, that all happens later. What we find here is that three days after this long, perilous journey, uh, Paul gets back to work. That's in verse 17. Um, he may have been brought to Rome by the authorities to stand trial before Caesar, but but he knew that the Lord had brought him to Rome to testify to the truth of the gospel and to the person of Jesus Christ. And so he calls all the local Jewish leaders together. Uh, he probably wasn't allowed to leave his residence to go to the synagogue like he normally would do. So he says, you guys are going to have to come to me. And, and they come. And the first thing that he does is he needs to set the record straight about who he was and what he had done or not done that resulted in him being a prisoner of Rome. He says he's got chains on him. And so, you know, very practically, if if you ever find yourself with chains guarded by someone, you should probably explain that first before you start talking about the gospel. They're going to wonder, why is this person in jail? Okay, set that clear. So that's what Paul does. He... he um emphasizes to the to this crowd um, what Luke has been showing us throughout all the trials that Paul went through, namely that, that he had done nothing wrong, um, that there's no reason, these chains are on him, but there's really no reason that he should be in, in chains. And so he clarifies things. Um, he does it in three ways. First, he says he had done nothing against the Jews. Um, that's in, in verse 17. Um, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs, of our fathers. He had not violated the Jewish law. He had not desecrated the temple as he had been accused of. In fact, he is still so closely tied to the Jewish people that he says, I'm not, uh, he, he calls them our people and, and our fathers. I'm, I'm, I'm one of you. And yet, despite his innocence, he was arrested in Jerusalem and then he's handed over to Rome. And then regarding Rome, secondly, he says, I've done nothing against the Romans either. I haven't done anything against the Jews and I've done nothing against the Romans. That's um, there in verse 17 as, as in verse 18. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. In that, he sort of summarizes his trials before Festus and Felix and his interview in front of Agrippa and, and Bernike, where everyone concludes at the end of those that he's done nothing to deserve death. But because the Jews didn't agree with that verdict, Paul says that he was forced to appeal to Caesar and after that, he clarifies thirdly that he has nothing, he, he, he was not bringing any charges against the Jews. He didn't come to Rome to bring charges against the Jews. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews. I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing against Rome. And I'm not here to, to say anything against Judaism. In other words, he, he's, he's not there to tell Caesar to punish the Jews because of all the false, false charges that they had brought against him. In fact, he says the whole reason he's in chains is because of the hope of Israel. And that's what he wants to talk about. I want to talk about the hope of Israel, he says. 
So in response to this threefold defense, the, the Jewish leaders surprisingly say that they had received no official word about Paul. That's surprising. I would think that something would have come from Judea about Paul, but they've received nothing. Uh, they've only heard about this, this supposed sect that he was a part of. We've seen it called the Nazarene sect. And they want Paul to clarify this teaching because it was spoken against everywhere. We can appreciate that they want to hear from Paul's mouth, though, what it's about. Paul will let you talk. You tell us what this is about. And so that leads to this second meeting um, that happens beginning in verse 23, uh, where even more people show up at Paul's living quarters. Uh, but, But before we get there, just pause for a minute and think about Paul's deep love and affection for his people, for the, the Jewish people. How amazing is it that, that Paul has no vendetta against the Jews? He has no animosity, no bitterness, no anger, no resentment against them. He didn't want to come and use his chance to stand before Caesar as a way to expose the way that the Jewish leaders had mistreated him and falsely accused him, tried to murder him multiple times. Rather, three days after arriving in Rome, his first order of ministry, the first thing that he wants to do is to gather all the Jews together so that he can tell them the good news about Jesus and tell them about the hope of Israel. That kind of patience and forgiveness and kindness towards others, especially against those who have hurt you, that's an act of God's grace. As we look around at our culture, our culture is a, is a place of outrage. And sadly, the church has, has bought into that. As followers of Jesus, we, we like to get upset. We get mad about everything sometimes. We, we hold grudges for the smallest of things. But it would seem that, that Paul's love for his fellow Jews, it, it only increased. The more they rejected him, the more he wanted to love them and tell them about who Christ was. As I thought about the difference between how we often act and the way that Paul responds to the, the wrongs that were done to him and the way we respond to the, the small wrongs that are done to us, I just thought, you know, may God give us that kind of a deep love for others that no matter how they treat us or how hopeless they may seem, that we love them. May God keep us from bitterness, keep us from outrage, keep us from retaliation and this sort of spirit that just wants to lash out at everyone. Instead, give us a heart of love, forgiveness and peace. As we've seen, Paul's sympathy was probably in part due to to the fact that he understood why they would fight against the idea of Jesus as the Messiah because he had done that all the way to the point of of violence. But he also knew that this good news about Jesus was the, the hope of Israel. This is the thing that they had all been waiting for and he wanted them to receive it and understand it. This is part of what Paul meant when he wrote in his letter to the Roman church, he said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He he knew that the door of salvation had been opened to everyone who would repent and believe regardless of their physical lineage. Um, And so he, he preached the gospel to all people. But he also always started by preaching it to the Jewish people who had been chosen as God's people to declare his goodness and his glory among the nations. And, and they should have been those that were the most eager and, and easy to, and, and they would have been eager to receive this message and easy, 
easily understood that Jesus was the Messiah, but that was, that was not the case. And so we're reminded that sin blinds us to the gospel. It makes us deaf to its message. It, it hardens our, our hearts, no matter who we are or what family we were born into. And because of that, it's only the supernatural work of God that gives us new eyes and new ears and a new heart that will allow us to turn and be healed and forgiven. Remember, to, to see, to hear, see, and believe the gospel is a miracle every time. No one gets in simply and, and easily because of who they were, the family they were born into. So we go back to Paul's residence after just thinking about his love for the, his own people. But we go back there, and, and the Jewish residents of Rome came out in droves on this appointed day. More people showed up, and they all crowd into Paul's living room. Um, and while they're in there, it says that he spoke about two things. The second part of verse 23, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He expounds to them, and that expounding involves testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. This is what Paul continued to do. You see it in verse 31. While he's, for the next two years, we're told that he was proclaiming two things again, the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus. That's the core of the gospel that Paul was, was preaching. What does that mean? And how might that shape our understanding of the gospel and the way that we talk about it to others and the way that we live this faith that we hold as Christians? I want us to think about the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So what is the kingdom of God? What was Paul talking about? What did he proclaim when he proclaimed the kingdom of God? God's kingdom very simply has to do with God's rule and, and reign. Uh, in the world, and it's something that's true now, but it's not, it's not fully realized in this world because it's marred by, by sin. And so Paul speaks about the kingdom, and he's probably communicating the, the uniqueness of God's present reign, and that the, the coming of the kingdom of, of God was marked by the coming of Jesus, but that it didn't mean the destruction of all earthly rulers and kingdoms, at least not yet. It will mean that one day. But the kingdom of God now is found as Jesus rules over the hearts and the lives of his followers. And then as those who are his followers act out in the world as God's representatives. So Jesus is king of our lives and we live as his representatives in this world. That's what the kingdom of God looks like now. That's in fact how God's kingdom has worked since Adam and Eve. That they were God's representatives on earth to spread his kingdom. And that's how he has always worked. But here in Acts, one of the great evidences of God's kingdom is that, that his kingdom has come is when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to live and indwell all who follow King Jesus. So God's Spirit comes and lives and resides in us and gives us the power to walk in the ways that please him and that show forth his kingdom. And so as I think about Paul speaking about the kingdom, I think he first, he probably emphasized the power of God's kingdom the power of God's kingdom that came in the Spirit. It's a power that had been sent from heaven by the resurrected and ascended Jesus to indwell all of his disciples so that they could live like kingdom people in this world. So God's kingdom is found in the power that comes with the Spirit that gives us victory over all of God's enemies and foreshadows this day when all of God's enemies will be put under his feet. So God's kingdom in our lives now looks like victory over sin. Even victory over disease and, and demons. Uh, 
God's kingdom has to do with power and a power that's found through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us that shows up in our daily lives. But God's kingdom is not just about power. I think God's kingdom is also about love. And so maybe Paul spoke about the love of God's kingdom. Not just the power of God's kingdom, but the love of God's kingdom. A love for God and a love for others, and a unique love between brothers and sisters in Christ. You remember that new commandment that Jesus gave to us, that we are to love one another with a self-sacrificing love as he has loved us through his death on the cross. And when we love in that way, we are showing forth the uniqueness of God's kingdom. It's a place of, of love and a love that is willing to lay down its life for one another. So God's kingdom is seen in the power of the spirit that causes us to have victory over sin and darkness. It's seen in the self-sacrificing love that it produces among us. And then God's kingdom is seen in the in the people that are a part of it, the people of God's kingdom. Paul probably didn't bring this up until later on. I don't think he spoke about it right away, but it shows up there in verse in verse 28 when he starts talking about about the Gentiles. Um, eventually he's trying to help us here to see that God's kingdom extends to all people, that the kingdom welcomes everyone who will repent and believe in Jesus, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. As we think about God's kingdom, we realize that God's kingdom is what our, our hearts are, are made for. We long for power over sin and suffering and death. That's what everyone in the world wants. They want to have power over, over the darkness in this world and over death itself. And we long for unconditional self-sacrificing love, deep relationship. And we long for, for unity amongst all people. Isn't that what we're always hearing about in this world? That we want people to be united in a, in a unity that's rooted in something deeper than all the external differences that are among us. It's what the world is reaching out for. The world wants justice. The world wants love. The world wants unity. And they want it because whether we know it or not, we are made for God's kingdom and our hearts are not satisfied until he is ruling over us, until his kingdom comes in fullness on this earth. As I started thinking about Paul preaching the good news and he's speaking about the kingdom of God, I thought maybe sometimes we, we are not as clear with um, the greatness of the great news. The, the good news is about personal salvation but it's also the reason for which God created the world so that he could live and, and, and rule and reign. The message of the gospel is about this, this, this restoration and the, the consummation of all things and about God reigning in this world and fulfilling the purpose for which this world was made. And that's all made possible through the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's where Paul's discussion always goes and it's where our discussion should always go. And it's where it's gonna go right now uh, to the person of Jesus Paul sought to reason with and convince the Jews about Jesus. He wanted them to know that he's the promised Messiah. And so as we often have seen Paul do, he goes to the Old Testament, he goes to the, to the law of Moses, and he goes to the prophets, and he shows how they testify about Jesus. And he probably was talking about how it was necessary. We've seen him talk about how it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die and rise again, because that didn't make sense but he wanted them to see that it was actually through suffering and death and resurrection that Jesus is exalted as king. That the doors of the kingdom were opened by Jesus when in love, 
He laid down his life to pay for our sins. And when in power, he rose from the dead to offer us new life so that through his finished work and the sending of the Spirit, he has opened the door for all people to come into his kingdom through faith in him. The message of the kingdom and the message about Jesus in some ways are the same thing because the message of the kingdom is the message about Jesus, that Jesus is the king and it's about what he has accomplished and what he has ushered in through his his death and resurrection. Jesus is the answer. I remember Alistair Begg preaching that one time and he said, people say Jesus is the answer. And he says, but what is the question? I think that's a really great way to say it. But I also think Jesus is the answer to all the questions. He is the answer. He's always the right answer, right? And not just in Sunday school, but for all the longings that we feel, all the all the things that we are, are missing and, and the pieces of us that feel like they are, are not right, he is the answer. And as we proclaim the gospel, we should speak about the kingdom of God and how it's consummated in the, the person of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns as king. We should be careful that, to make our gospel call very personal, but we should also not miss the fact that what God is doing through Christ is much bigger than you or me by ourselves. It's much greater than simply making you and I happy and healthy and, and wise. It's, it's God's work of redeeming all things for all eternity. And, and it's an invitation for us to be part of that work in the world now as we are part of God's kingdom and his representatives on earth and we can live for the reason that we were created and live for God's glory. So Paul preaches the kingdom of God and he argues and testifies about who Jesus is and the result is that the house is divided. Some people are convinced and some people don't believe, which is always the case. Maybe we thought Rome would be different. It's Rome. Of course, they're going to all believe, right? No. And the crowd is divided and seeing the crowd divided, Paul makes one final statement which of course is just some brokenhearted plea for everyone. No, don't leave, right? Listen to what Paul says. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, verse 26, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, then I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. I don't know about you, that strikes me as a little bit harsh. It it feels pretty heavy-handed from Paul. But Paul is in good company when he quotes Isaiah 6, isn't he? Because that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Four times in each of the Gospels, it's recorded that Jesus said it. Um, In uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's right in the context of the parable of the seeds and the sower. And he speaks about people who hear but don't hear. And then in the passage that Jake read for us from John 12, it's near the the time of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion where he quotes this passage about the many people that had rejected Jesus. I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand this idea, this rejection of of Christ and the rejection of the kingdom. Why would anyone reject the message of God's kingdom? Why would anyone reject Jesus 
as as the Messiah? How could someone not see this kingdom? How could someone not hear the goodness of the good news? As I thought about that, however my brain works, the image that came to my mind was of riding a roller coaster for the first time. And I, I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. We were near Cedar Point, the roller coaster capital of the world. And so very early on, I learned how much fun roller coasters are. Uh, but I also remember how scary they were, sort of. Uh, as a kid, I, you know, you stand back and you kind of resist going on a roller coaster at, at first. And then you, you finally do. You know, you're tall enough and you get through. I think the first one I went on, I was like just a little bit too short, but we got through. And, and I remember, you know, you sit down and you put the seatbelt on and then you start hearing the click, 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 click of it, you know, going up and you start to wonder maybe this wasn't the best idea in the world. And now I'm not going to be able to warn everyone not to ride the Cedar Creek mine ride because it's not all it was made out to be. But, but then when the train finally drops and you pull into the station, I could, I could hardly remember ever being afraid. Or, or scared of going on a roller coaster because I had, I had gone on this thing and now I had no clue why anyone would ever be scared or fearful or uninterested in roller coasters. I'll ride any roller coaster any day of the week. I think if we're careful, if we're not careful, we, we can begin to have the same attitude towards Jesus and towards the gospel as people look at that message and don't understand it. As part of God's kingdom, it all makes so much sense. The gospel is so clear. God has opened our eyes. God has, has opened our ears and, and our hearts have, have been filled with the good news and we are filled with the spirit. And we don't understand why anyone would ever reject it or not understand it. But the reality is that apart from the work of God's spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to believe the gospel, we would have all rejected it. To hear and see and believe the gospel is a miracle. And it's a miracle that we have to ask God to do in the hearts of the people that we love. And it's sort of once they cross the line, once they take the plunge, once they ride the ride, as it were, then they will see and they will understand. I don't know why I ever rejected it. But on the other side of it, it it's hard to see. It's hard to understand because that's how we naturally are. And so to hear and see and believe the gospel is a miracle. And yet it's also a decision, isn't it? These folks chose to walk away. And yet God was the one that hardened their hearts. I don't totally understand that. I don't know if anyone truly does. But I, I think there's this... this uh, sense of judgment that is that is here and and paul here at the end having talked to so many different people in so many different towns there's just this note of finality as he's here in rome and almost that that things are going to shift in in salvation history that the gentiles are the ones that will now listen they will hear him because um, i'm not sure what's going on exactly but the the great danger that I think Paul is warning us against seems to be in, in hearing and seeing the gospel, but rejecting it so often that our hearts grow callous. Because there's a way to hear and not hear. There's a way to listen and, and not hear. There's a way to see and not, not perceive. And this prophecy says that the people's hearts has grown dull and they have, they have closed their eyes 
that it seemed to be a process that happened. It may be that the Jews whom God had spoken to for so many centuries had simply decided not to see and not to hear. That their hearts were no longer moved by the hope of the gospel, the hope of a Messiah. And maybe that's why Paul was so sure that the Gentiles would listen. That they would hear of Jesus and they would see the wonder of what he had done and they would believe. It'd still be a miracle, of course, but but maybe the soil of the hearts of the Gentiles was not as hard as the soil of the hearts of the Jews. I'm not totally sure what's going on here, but I know it's a strong word of, of judgment. It makes me wonder, it, it makes me just ask that God would keep us from having a hard heart about the beauty of the gospel, even on this side of it, but also that, that maybe there are those who have heard and just continue to reject and continue to reject, and there's so much danger in that, that their heart would grow callous that their eyes would be shut and they would not hear and they would not listen and they would not be changed. There's a a warning here, a warning that reminds us of the miracle of salvation, but also reminds us of the need for everyone to respond to the message of the kingdom. There's a warning here not to harden your heart, not to make your heart that make your ears deaf to the message of the truth. I think there's instruction here about how we proclaim the gospel. In some ways, I wonder, would we be so bold as to say this to someone? To say, you're fulfilling the prophecies. You are, your heart is growing hard. Your eyes are being closed. Your, your ears are not listening. You're in a scary place. You've heard the gospel so often and, and you're not receiving it. Beware. But I don't think that that warning is a, a means to give up either. I think rather this warning is actually an encouragement for us to keep proclaiming no matter what the results might be. In fact, I think this prophecy from Isaiah seems to indicate that often the case is that when we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and we tell people about Jesus that they will not hear or repent, but that we are to go on speaking. How long was Isaiah supposed to keep speaking? Until there were no cities left to talk to. In other words, until the end of the age, we continue to speak and we continue to proclaim and we continue to say the truth, even if no one will listen. We speak to all people because there are people who will see and hear and repent. They will respond. And they will respond because of God's grace. Because for anyone to hear and believe and see the gospel is a miracle. And so maybe our response is to ask God to soften our hearts and remind us of the miracle that he's done in our own lives, of bringing us to salvation. And then also maybe to soften our hearts to proclaim the gospel to others. And then thirdly, maybe to soften the heart of someone that we love to hear and to receive and believe the gospel. That he would do the miracle of salvation and they would respond and repent and believe.